2: Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production
0: of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition, I'm Paula Dagnan. Coming up in Special Edition this week, we're going to meet Two authors. Both women hail from northeastern Pennsylvania. We're going to start off, though, with a safe holiday season. How? By listening to Dawn Webster. She is the physician's assistant with MedExpress in the Pittsburgh area. Dawn checks in with us and she tells us some of the ways to stay healthy this holiday season, whether you are being the host or hostess or whether you're being a gracious guest. Don we are into the the, the crux, I guess, of the holiday season. And so many people are now planning their get-togethers. And of course, and many have already begun, but what happens when you have allergies of any type, whether it's a food allergy, some people can even be allergic to real Christmas trees, and so many different... How do people have to plan ahead when they're confronted with all these things, because sometimes these allergies can really turn out to be serious.
2: Sure. So most people do know, you know, what their triggers are, what they're allergic to. And if it is things like Christmas trees, live Christmas trees, or pet dander, or even dust mites, you know, the inside allergies, a lot of times they come prepared. You know, they take an antihistamine before they come an Allegra, a Zyrtec, a Claritin, um, but honestly, if, if the is at your house and you know that, you know, Cousin Bob is severely allergic to cats, maybe keep your cats out of the main couple rooms for a few days beforehand just to kind of help them out. Because even if, you know, you do take the antihistamines, you're still going to have itchy, watery eyes. You're still going to be sneezing. You know, it, it can be miserable. So, you know, just do your best. Um, if, if it's something like pets that, you know, you can um, help a little bit. Uh, when it comes to food allergies, those are a little bit different. And a lot of times the people that do have food allergies, um, it can be, you know, particularly severe, like peanut allergies, um, which is really important when it comes to things like deep frying. I mean, most people don't realize everything you deep fry with is a peanut oil um, for the most part. So most of the time, if it's an allergy like that, you know, you're aware and you do have to, you know, be very careful and very cautious because those um, reactions are typically way worse than just itchy, watery eyes. They can be, you know, life-threatening. So in that case, um, you know, you just want to be very diligent about making sure there is no peanuts or, um, you know, that the foods that you're cooking with don't have any traces of those allergens in them. And food labels are very good now. You know, they label um, that, you know, they're made in facilities that also, you know, make. Um, you know, has nut exposure or dairy or gluten. So a lot of times if you know someone's allergic to something, just, you know, reading the labels can really make a big difference.
0: Even not so much as reading the labels, but... Uh, A lot of people, again, the holidays come along and even people who may be on cardiac diets, diets for diabetes, um, anything like that, always kind of feel like, well, it's the holidays I can splurge or I can go off what I've been doing. What are the ramifications if people do think that way and, you know, it's one day, but Can that cause problems going into the next day?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times people that are on special low-sodium diets especially, um, that's a big one, you know, around Christmas with the ham. They, you know, they'll have a couple pieces of ham because, again, just like you said, it's Christmas. It's one day they can, you know, and they can give themselves a little break. But then they could wake up the next day and they could have swollen legs. They could have chest heaviness. Um, a lot of times people with um, conditions like congestive heart failure, you know, all that sodium does, it causes their body to retain even more fluid, um, and that can take a couple days to a couple weeks to really, you know, kind of fix itself. Um, same with diabetics, you know, they, they shouldn't have sugar, and and a lot of times, you know, people don't, you know, make sure that they don't eat that, and then their sugars are kind of out of whack for a couple days. And you know, it's definitely not an easy fix, but it's something just kind of to be aware of. That you no, know, it's not something that you know only only affects you that day.
0: When we're talking about again being the the good host or the good hostess, is it? Because I guess in this day and age, everybody just thinks, well, I can eat anything, I can do anything I want. But being that person who everyone's coming to your home, is it a bad idea to just check and make sure? And, you know, sometimes people don't want to mention that I might not need, I might not want to get this or I might not want to get that. But do you think you should at least put it out there that if there is something...
2: Yeah, I think that that's a wonderful idea. And a lot of times now, I mean, everything's digital. I mean, most of the time you get a text message or a Facebook invite to your family gatherings now. So, I mean, it's not hard at all to send a a quick text to the group or to post something on Facebook. Hey, if anyone has any, you know, food allergies or if anyone um, is on any type of restricted diet, just let me know, you know. So in our day and age when everything is digital and, you know, quick, It's certainly not a bad idea, and it's not hard to do either.
0: When we're talking about the uh, digital age, one thing that, well, we can get viruses in our computer, but of course, we can also get them in our body. How do we know? Viral, bacterial, what makes a difference, and what do you do?
2: Sure. So viruses um, are very small um, particles um, that you breathe in through your nose or your mouth, And essentially, they make you sick. So, um, you know, you get a stuffy, runny nose. You get a sore, scratchy throat. Sometimes you can feel achy or tired, a low fever. And most of the time, if you're young or old but healthy, you're going to fight that virus. It's going to go away on its own. You know, nothing to worry about. You just have to take it easy for a couple days. Whereas bacterial infections, you know, those are the ones that are a little bit worse that a lot of times you, you do need an antibiotic to get rid of. And really, the biggest way to tell the difference um, is duration of symptoms. So you have it for a week or two. You can feel yourself starting to get better. It's most likely a virus. But if you're getting worse, not better, um, if your cough is getting more productive, you're starting to have some chest heaviness or some chest tightness, or, you know, your stuffy, runny nose is just getting worse, and you now have pressure in your head or behind your eyes or in your ears, Those are signs that it could be a bacterial infection and that, you know, you would want to get to the doctors to get checked out.
0: And I know one of the things that the um, Pennsylvania Department of Health released not too long ago is that the flu season has already really taken off in the Commonwealth. Is it too late to get a flu shot?
2: Sure. No, no, it's not too late at all. And, yeah, we're seeing a ton of flu right now. It was a very early, you know, kind of kickoff to this flu season. Um, but no, it is not too, it is not too late. You know, we recommend anyone that hasn't had the flu shot to go get it, you know, the sooner the better.
0: And when we're talking about the flu, Dawn, a lot of people, again, there's a difference between getting the flu. And now, of course, we're seeing all the ads you have to get within 48 hours or this isn't going to work or that's not going to work. So how do we know within 48 hours that that's what we have?
2: so we kind of joke a little bit um, that you can tell when someone has the flu. You know, when someone comes, um, you know, to any doctor's office and they have a cold, you know, they don't look like they feel well. But when people have the flu, I mean, they're the ones that come in in their bathrobes and they just look miserable and sick. Um, so really, the flu is one of those things that just hits you hard. You know, you're just you feel fine and then all of a sudden you don't and you're tired, and, you know, everything hurts, and you have a high fever, and you know. So it's really just how quickly it kind of sets in and how bad you feel.
0: Bathrobes. Wow. You really have to be not feeling well. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) When we talk about, um, again, such things as flu and coughs and colds, I guess a lot of people will say, well, I can deal with it on my own. I don't have to see the doctor. But what are the gotta, gotta, have to's that you should immediately say, I can't deal with this on my own. I really need to go see somebody.
2: Sure. So um, if you try things over the counter, you know, the cold and flu medicines, the Tylenols, the Motrin, and they're not helping at all and you're getting worse, you know, that's kind of a sign maybe you need to get checked out. Um, Like I said, if, if it hits you hard and it hits you fast, that's probably the flu. And you do at least want to get tested because you're right. You have to start those antivirals within 48 hours or else they're not going to be effective. So, you know, that's another thing. Or if you have any pre-existing health conditions, if you're a diabetic, if you're on any type of immunosuppressive medications, you know, you, you don't want to kind of essentially mess with those things. You can get sick quick. Um, if you're in that category. So, you know, it's better to err on the side of caution in those cases.
0: And I know everybody says hand-washing. What are some of the other tips that, again, especially when we're with family and friends and we've got ages from teeny tiny to uh, to up in years, what are some of the things that we should do in order to try and keep all of these germs at bay?
2: Sure. So definitely, definitely wash your hands as much as you can. If you don't have soap and water, use hand sanitizer. Um, Kids, you tell them to go wash their hands. You don't actually even know if they're using soap. They're in and out of the bathroom so quick. So a lot of times with kids, even after they wash their hands, I'm like, all right, come over here, let's use some hand sanitizer too. So, um, you know, kids just kind of be on them because, you know, if they're having fun and they don't, you know, they don't want to take a break and go wash their hands Well, they, you know, they want to blow their nose and keep playing. So, you know, just kind of be on kids especially. And then um, if you do have any type of cold or cough or you're just kind of not feeling well, you might want to avoid going to those family parties. Even though, you know, you do want to see everyone, you know, you just don't know. And, you know, you, you can never really be too careful, especially when people have new babies. Um, or, you know, you have great-grandmother who's 95. You know, you just you don't want to. You don't want to potentially give them anything that could really, you know, make them ill.
0: And then I have to ask, what has Dawn Webster asked Santa for this coming <laughs> holiday season? Do you have your, your list that you can share with us?
2: Um, I honestly, and my husband's probably very frustrated by this, I really don't have a list this year.
0: Maybe just to keep everybody out of MedExpress yes. for the holiday season. <laughs> exactly, Dawn, thank you and a very happy oh, holiday. You're It's always nice to have Dawn Webster join us on Special Edition because she always brings us some good tips to keeping us healthy any time of the year. And in particular, the Pennsylvania Department of Health once again, as Dawn just did, encouraging all Pennsylvanians to make sure they have their flu shot this year because numbers are out early that it's a very aggressive flu this season. Now, don't go away. There's more Special Edition to come. Coming up next, we're going to meet Lisa Miller. She is the first of our two local authors that we're going to be talking with today. She's going to tell us more about her book, My Skull Possession, on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. We're now going to meet Lisa Miller. She is a local author, and her latest book is My Skull Possession. She teamed up with... Michael Bellardi. They got together to bring a different twist to the book world and how they're introducing it to everyone out there. We'll give you a sneak peek into what her book is about and maybe it just might be a good idea for someone on your holiday gift giving list. We're going to start with Lisa Miller. You're an author. What? ever came across your mind to say, I'm going to sit down and write a book?
1: (laughs) Well, I worked in the TV industry for almost 20 years, and now I'm in radio, behind the scenes in both, and I was missing that creative element in my life. So for years, I've been a reader, and I grew up reading Edgar Allan Poe at nine, ten years old, been a mystery fan for for that long and in 2001 someone mentioned that there is a a writers conference the pen writers writers group pen um, writers conference so i thought you know i'm going to go i went by myself didn't Where know is anyone that? uh pen writers is a pennsylvania writers organization But the conference was held in Hershey.
0: Oh, so it wasn't something local.
1: No, it wasn't something local. Okay. So I said, I'm going to go and just talk to some other writers, like-minded people, and give, I had some things that I had jotted down and some ideas for a story, and I'm just going to bounce it off of them and just see if, you know, it's something that I could pursue. So I went to the conference, met some great people, and from that point, I just started writing. And I got great inspiration from a lot of writing coaches, um, some other great authors, and I just went from there.
0: Did you have authors that you kind of gravitated toward before you actually started and decided, well, maybe I'd like to do that? Because the material that you've selected here, and this is your first, correct?
1: This is my second. Oh, your second? Second book, yes.
0: Okay. Was the first one like the second one?
1: The first one was categorized as a mystery, so I knew when I did my second novel, I wanted it to be a little bit, a little bit darker, um, blurring the lines of mystery, horror, and um, thriller genres. Oh. So uh, my first book was The Running Path, and that was 2010. So there was a long gap between writer's conference and first book and second book, but that's just the nature of the game.
0: So in betw- between these two books, then, did you have a writer? that you maybe followed, that you kind of not took the style, but just was more of that style?
1: I wouldn't say a specific writer. Um, I've, I'm a big advocate of reading. I try to get my teenage sons to read as much as possible, but that's always a, a hurdle. Um, but I just read everything I can, different genres, gravitating towards mystery and horror. So I would say over the years huge fan of some of the staples like Stephen King, Clive Barker, Dan Brown. Um, in recent years, I'm a huge fan of Ruth Ware, so more of the, the mystery genre. So I think as long as you are reading, you're, you're honing your craft of writing because you need to read in order to write. So I, again, throughout the years, just constantly reading and gravitating more towards those genres. So what is this book now? So this book, it's a young adult um, thriller. It's categorized as a thriller, but it crosses over into different genres and blurs the lines of mystery, horror, thriller. So it will appeal to different fans of all of those genres. And it's a young adult, meaning it's appropriate for teens, but it's definitely going to appeal to an adult audience, fiction audience. So it covers a lot of ground
0: all right let's bring michael in and michael you had the opportunity to work with lisa Mm -hmm. on part of her project and that is a video Mm -hmm. which i saw and it's very cool thank you and when you when she approached you with this uh, how did that how did that whole creative process work
3: Well, I mean, Lisa and I worked together for years um, back in uh, in the days at a local affiliate station. So, you know, we had a little bit of a camaraderie over the past of working together for clients. You know, and then finally, Lisa called me and said, you know, I'm the client. I want to do a trailer, a book trailer, which is something that is kind of in its infancy stages. I mean, book trailers are not very common these days. right? But, you know, books are also moving into the digital world and all that stuff. So we sat down and we're like... All right, we're gonna make a trailer for a book. We want to make sure that we want to captivate the audience. So we sat down. We went to um, one of the local establishments here, and we sat down. We talked about it. I got some uh, the layout of the book. We started to see what we can do to kind of pave the way to get uh, readers interested in reading the book. So we sat down. We talked. You know, uh, Lisa had mentioned that it takes a lot of it takes place inside of an oddity shop, and um, one of the local oddity shops, The Strange and Unusual. Uh, Josh Ball, is the owner, is one of my closest friends. So I'm sitting here going, "That has to be our venue." So working with and and Josh and I work together on video as well, and we do so many things together. i like, so this that is... wasn't
0: a big leap.
3: No, it wasn't a big leap. But you know what it did is it, it you know, because we had the time that we had and what we were trying to do and this is very much you know at first it was an independent project and then it it took on and it started growing even more so working at the strange unusual made everything a little bit easier for us to do we had a beautiful floor plan we had everything that we needed there so we sat down we started coming up with the the recipe for success how do we make people feel what they're going to feel in the book and be intrigued and interested to go out and buy the book so I called in a few of my friends that were, you know, up-and-coming actors, people that were interested in doing that. So they're all local? Absolutely. Oh. Everything about this project was done local, and that's, that's what's cool about it. You know what I mean? We didn't have to go to New York City. We didn't have to bring in, you know, all these different things that, um, you know, weren't quite available immediately to us. We wanted to keep this local. We have a talented local author. We have a talented local business. Um, all right, so let's use talented people from NEPA. So we kind of bridged that all those gaps together, and um, we sat down one night, came up with an idea, we came back a few days later, shot it, and then um, I spent the next couple days editing, putting it together, and it came out to be what it is now.
0: Well, when I heard it, I thought it was Lisa that was actually doing the voiceover, Mm -hmm. because it just sounded like it would be something that Lisa would be very accustomed to doing, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't. No. So that's pretty cool. No, that,
3: that was um, that was a local a local lady from the area. Her name is uh, Gabrielle Zeno. Very very talented woman. She uh, she comes in. She likes to, to hang out and do whatever she can. Uh, she's one of those people who has just a beautiful personality. Has the ability to take on any sort of project. Always looking to grow. And she said you know, Michael, I want to give this a shot. And I brought her in, and it was it was a good fit. It was a good fit for us. It was a good fit for what we were trying to do. And uh, it just came in like a blank canvas, and she made it work, which was awesome.
0: Well, I already told Lisa I get first dibs on the audiobook.
3: <laughs> there you go.
0: Lisa, come back up here now and tell us a little bit more about, this, about the story of the book. You said that it is um, for youth, older youth, and in michael's uh, in Michael's trailer, there are they look like teens that are that are there. So, what's the premise of all of this?
1: the The premise of the book, it it is a young adult um thriller. So in order to be categorized as young adult, your protagonists, some of your main characters also have to fall into the teen category anywhere from twelve to eighteen. So our protagonist, her name is Brighton Corley, and she is 16 years old. And the premise of the story is the town, there is a town that is just obsessed and overwhelmed with this book that surfaced. And what happens is that some of its readers die after reading the book. So our protagonist, Brighton, embarks on this journey with some great characters supporting her to find out what's the mystery surrounding this. Is it something that's haunted? Is it something possessed? Or is it something a little more sinister that's going on with the connection to the town? So the focus, the focus of my novel is the book. The book is one of the main characters. And Brighton is unraveling what's behind this. Why are these people dying? So there are a lot of paranormal, supernatural elements. And that's where the curiosity shop comes into play because she does a lot of research there learning about different items that have a history of being haunted or possessed so there are a lot of references to real and i do air air quotes real events so the book is not a true story by any means but it's inspired by a lot of true events that you may have heard of things being haunted or items having locally not necessarily locally. Because I mean, we do have we a do, few. We do. <laughs> we <laughs> we do have, have local a <laughs> stories, but more in the vein of people that are fans of the Conjuring universe and that are familiar with Annabelle and haunted dolls, haunted vases. Um, there is a mirror that's located at the Myrtles Plantation in Louisiana that has a haunted history, and there's a great reference to that without giving too much away from the book, but... A lot of references. So fans of the paranormal, supernatural that follow things like that or look for things that are haunted or have a history like that will really appreciate the book.
0: Wow. Well, whatever got you involved in that? What I mean, of all the things that you could decide to write about, <laughs> of all the veins that you can travel, of all – whatever made you decide to pick this to include a book – to have it with teens, to be able to work in the curiosity shop—it fascinates me where the ideas come from.
1: Well, one of the greatest things, starting with the the last thing that you mentioned, including teens, I I want to raise more awareness for for teens and young adults just to be more of a reader, just because there's so much focus on social media and um, digital. Mediums, and again, having two young teens, I know what the struggles are. So one of the best um, compliments that I got, and that Michael got, and he doesn't even know this, but a few people said to me, um, "You know, I watched the trailer, and I don't even read, but I'm definitely going to read this book. It, it drew me right in." So what? I mean, we had <laughs> I had several people say that already. So that was that was my goal. So that was why I wanted to bring the trailer part and just to merge the the visual with the reading aspect of it.
0: Now, let me ask Michael then, are you concerned at all, and I'm not going to ask Lisa, I'm going to ask you, are you concerned at all that by seeing, because again, when we read a book, Mm -hmm. we have our own imagination.
3: Sure.
0: Are you concerned that that, might cause a little bit of a shift in the way that people read?
3: Well, you know, in in the discussions between Lisa and I, that was a concern. Um, You know, like I said, these book trailers, this is a new style of marketing for uh, for an author, for a book. So yeah, you know, putting too much, putting a face to a character or putting a line to a character um, has a way of kind of, I don't want to. It, 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 you, you would be concerned that it could jeopardize that. Mm-hmm. In this case, we were tactful with how we did our, how we did the shoot. You know what I mean? Um, the shoot was more alluring um, just by the lack of what we did put in there. We wanted people to feel like they 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 met the cliffhanger. We want them to see that okay, I need to know more. Like, you know, there's just four or five individuals here. Who is this? What is this? So we made sure that we kept that element of mystery inside the trailer, and that was a strategy. So I do think that we ca- we definitely captivated. We definitely, you know, succeeded in our goal there, um, especially with the minimal amount of lines that was even in the trailer. Mm-hmm. So. while that concern is valid i think we have definitely evaded ruining or spoiling any sort of imagination because this book is full of it. it you have every opportunity to sit there and be just sinking into this book you really do and your mind is going to have more than enough opportunity to use its imagination to create what what you are visualizing as you read it
0: did you have someone local do the music
3: um, no, I did not. The music, the music was uh, a, a music bed that I put on my computer over years because um, I work on a number of different things, and I love the spooky world myself. Uh, I manage Reaper's Revenge on the side here, and then <laughs> you know, at the same time, you know, being involved in all the other different things that I do. So this was kind of like right up my alley. Being able to be in the oddity shop, do something a little more dark and eerie—that's kind of my personality. So um, I love Halloween. And it's fall. So this this just fell right at the perfect timing. A lot of cool elements to have fun with. And it was just right up my alley. I I wanted everything to do with it.
0: And where where would the uh, book be available?
1: The book will be available in local stores.
0: That sounds amazing. What's the title again?
1: My Skull Possession.
0: My Skull Possession. Lisa, Michael, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks again to Lisa Miller and Michael Bellardi for joining us on Special Edition. Lisa, the author of the book, My Skull Possession. Now, don't go away. We have another local author to meet on Special Edition. Her book, well, it's a little bit different. It's a story of the survivors. And I'll let her explain. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. Now we're going to introduce you to local author Amy Archer. The book is entitled, If I Don't Make It, I Love You. It's about school shootings, but not the way that you might think. Amy was able to talk to people involved in school shootings, the survivors, and we're going to find out exactly what they have to say. Amy, I love to talk to authors, especially local authors. Let's start off by having you give us just a little bit of your background, where you're from,
4: and how you
0: got involved in this current project.
4: Well, thank you for having me, Paula. Um, So I grew up in Scranton. I've been here pretty much my whole life. My husband and I live in Scott Township now, which is only about 15 miles north of Scranton. And um, I started writing when I was 12 years old and I've been writing ever since and I've always written first person kind of memoir stuff and last year I was asked to be part of an anthology called My Body My Words where we asked authors to write letters to their bodies and we did that, and my co-editor, Lauren Kleinman, and I really worked well together. We we just have sort of the same artistic vision, which is very rare to find with artists and especially writers. Mm-hmm. So uh, we decided to do another project together. And in the meantime, what was happening with me personally is I was, like many parents, devastated by the Sandy Hook shootings. So I knew, you know, I got involved with the gun violence prevention advocacy groups right after that shooting. Uh, my daughters were the same age as those kids that were killed that day. So I knew that I had wanted to do something with gun violence. So Lauren and I talked and it seemed like a natural fit. So we started with a question, which is whatever happened to the kids that survived Columbine? Uh-huh. You know, what happened to them? Because we were also their age when that shooting happened. Right. And how long ago was that? That was in 1999. Wow. So That's they, you know, amazing. they recently had their 20-year anniversary. Right. And it was, you know, I was a a junior in college when that happened. So I was like 2 years older than them, but around the same age. So right. I I was always aware that my life was sort of progressing simultaneously with theirs, but I always was aware that there was a large difference between our lives. So we started there. What happened with the kids who survived Columbine, and thus this project grew out of that. And the title of the book is? If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings. And where did you
0: come up with that? Is that from one of the actual incidents?
4: Yeah, um, we started this project about a month before Parkland happened. So we started in January of 2018, and then Parkland happened on Valentine's Day. And I read an article Um, about a young girl who texts her mother hiding from a closet saying, if I don't make it, I love you. And I just thought that is such a haunting statement on so many levels, but especially for a parent. So I knew that that really encompassed what we were trying to capture here. So –
0: what exactly is the uh, the makeup of the book then? Is it a retrospect of what happened at all of the different happenings? Is it following one particular? As you mentioned, uh, you growing up in an era of Columbine, does it start there?
4: Kind of give us a little bit of an overview. Okay, so the book covers 50, 52 years of shooting. So we start with, we work in reverse chronology so we start with the Santa Fe shooting that happened in Texas so we start with the most recent and then we work backwards we go to Parkland and then Great Mills and all the shootings that happened leading up to Parkland and we go all the way back through Sandy Hook Virginia Tech West Nickel Mines Columbine Heath Thurston and we end with what is considered the first school shooting which is the University of Texas Tower shooting in 1966. Wow. So we have 21 different schools, 84 survivors wrote their stories and like I said it spans 52 years. So these are not stories that I wrote for them. They're not as told to. These are actual narratives written by the survivors. Did you contact these people? We did. We interviewed over a hundred oh. for the book. So it took about 18 months to put this together. And it was hard and rewarding. And I I think that, you know, people when they hear what I'm working on, or they they hear about this book, they're often skeptical or scared to read it. Mm -hmm. It's not that bad. It's there are moments in the book that are very painful, I'm not gonna lie. But there are moments in the book that are very hopeful and beautiful and and full of optimism so i think that it really gives the average american some sort of idea of what this is like to live through but also the path forward like so how we recover
0: from this these were the actual people that survived it wasn't parents
4: well we have some parent we have the the way that we phrased it is anyone directly affected by a school shooting So we have actual students who were in the schools, we have students who were shot and survived in the schools, we have parents who lost children, children who lost parents, two trauma doctors that wrote for us that were on the scene during these. We have um, just a variety of different voices because what we are trying to show is the vicarious trauma that happens through these events, how it's not just the person who's in the school who suffers, how it's Mm -hmm. You know, the parents, the grandparents, the community members, the the ministers, the teachers. The first responders. The first responders, Yeah,
0: absolutely. Now, that brings up an interesting point, because, again, you're talking, you're going back to 1966. That, I wasn't even aware that, because, again, I grew up in that era, and I knew nothing about that. So, what have you found in talking to... 1966 compared to 2019?
4: Well, what's interesting is, and, and not even the Texas Tower shooting, but even if you go back only as far as Columbine, we really thought that, that it was just an anomaly, that it was just some sort of random attack. And I can remember watching Columbine and thinking that. Mm-hmm. And so, so what has happened because of that is... When when Columbine happened and even the Texas Tower shooting, you know, we learned a lot about those victims because the stories were treated with such care and respect because it was it was almost seen to be some sort of outlier, mm-hmm. right? So we learned a lot about the people who were killed at Columbine and we almost came to know them. There were movies made about them. Same thing with Texas, there were plays, movies, books. Mm-hmm. But as the shootings are becoming more and more frequent, these these stories of these survivors or those who were killed or those who lived are boiled down to like two minutes on the nightly news. And yeah. that's what we really hope to accomplish with this book is that there's more attention paid to the people who lived through this or lost their lives in these shootings. In that
0: same type of way, uh, you know, mentioning about uh, two minutes on the nightly news, Do you find or have you found in in reading these that there has been a mention of Internet, social media? Because, again, Columbine, a little bit starting, but now, boom.
4: Yeah, communication in general plays a really interesting role in these shootings. Um, There are several themes that you see start to emerge, and communication is one of them. Like in the earlier shootings, you know, around Columbine they started to have makeshift reunification centers so they were you know taking the kids to places where they would be reunite with their parents and the parents just didn't know if their kid was dead or alive and in the more recent shootings with cell phones especially it's heartbreaking but it's also you know parents have the ability to communicate with their kids immediately to see if they're okay but then you always have the stories of the parents. Like, I worked with one mother from Santa Fe, Texas, and her daughter Kimberly was killed. She was 14. And she wrote, like, she talked to me about sending that text message and never seeing the read receipt. And, like, a little detail like that just haunts you, you uh. know? Like, you send this message, and you know your kid is dead by that point. So it's like, and then all the parents of Parkland waiting in those parking lots for those cell phones to ring. And it, it's just it really the communication or lack thereof becomes a common theme. Well, the reason I
0: mention that is that's pretty much where you got the title. Yeah. Came from a cell phone call. Yeah, absolutely. And again, when you think Columbine, when you think in that area, you didn't have all of that because it wasn't that prevalent as it is. Right. What have you learned from all of this? I mean, you know, you got involved with, gun control, you got involved in that kind of area. Mm -hmm. Have you learned anything? Have you learned from the people that have been involved, whether it's a necessity or
4: not a necessity? Well, I think my biggest takeaway is that we need better resources for the survivors of these shootings. Um, There are, you know, these large national groups like Everytown and the Brady Campaign who are fighting gun violence prevention. But they're not really able to do both and support the survivors adequately. So, I really feel like the survivors need a lot of mental health support, a lot of physical health support. A lot of them who were shot in school are still living with the physical mm-hmm. ramifications of that, and you know nobody's paying for that healthcare. Like that's something that they're putting out out of pocket. So, especially now, we're starting to see parents. You know, we're getting to an age where we're starting to see, like, cyclical trauma. Like, we're seeing parents who lived through school shootings taking their kids to school. Never even thought school. about that. Yeah. We have two schools in Kentucky, um, Heath High School, which I believe was in 1997 or 8, right before Columbine. We have parents who lived through that, had their children in a different school in Kentucky that had a shooting in 2018, so you have this cyclical trauma now so you you know in a lot of the the mental health effects and and trauma that they felt from their original shooting is starting to come up now Mm -hmm. in how they parent so i really think that they need a lot of support and i know that there's some smaller groups like the rebels project which was started by started right after the aurora movie theater shooting and it was started by a couple of uh, graduates from Columbine High School who lived through the shooting. They uh, help support mass shooting survivors. Like, that's their thing. They don't fight for for any kind of political change. All they do is support survivors, and I think that we need more of that for them. This country owes it to them, in my opinion.
0: Do any of these people that now you're saying, which I never even thought about, the fact that you have these people that survived and now they have children. Yep. Have they come up with maybe suggestions or this must, the, Amy, I hope there's going to be a second book because this is just fascinating.
4: It, it is fascinating. Um, I know of one survivor in particular. Her name is Jamie Amon. She was in Columbine. She was not shot, but she lost friends in Columbine. She was in the school when it happened and she has children and she didn't really think about or deal with her own trauma around her own shooting until she had children. And she accompanied one of her children to school one day as like a helper parent in her kindergarten class or something. They did a lockdown drill, like a, a volunteer a lockdown active shooter drill.
0: Yeah. What, and we, what we used to think was yes, big for a fire drill. Yes. Yeah.
4: So they did one of those and she just panicked. And she realized at that point that she had to start advocating for change so she she does a lot of advocacy work but she also has introduced in Pennsylvania and I'm sorry I don't know the name of this bill Jamie she introduced a victims resource bill so she's trying to get co-signers to sign on to that right now so there there are survivors fighting for survivor resources Mm -hmm. and I just I feel like I said that this country owes that to them and one of the things that's amazing to me is a lot in a lot of their stories Particularly with that population around those three or four shootings around Columbine, they feel like they should have solved this problem. Like a lot of them echoed that in their stories that they were sorry for their kids because they felt like they should have solved this. And I remember reading it, thinking, "Are you ca- like what have you to be sorry for? We should be sorry that we did not fix this." Right for your children. Did they have any kind of insight? Having um, been
0: on the inside?
4: Yeah, I mean, they're all very active. So um, there are several different types of groups that have sprung up out of very recent shootings, especially Sandy Hook.
0: Hmm.
4: Like a lot of the parents, right. um we worked with Alyssa Parker, her daughter Emily was killed, and she started Safe and Sound Schools, and they just laser focus on Let's not worry about legislation, because that's a very slow-moving change. Let's focus on what we can do to make our schools safer immediately. Mm. And then you have groups like Sandy Hook Promise, started by Mark Barden, who lost his son, Daniel, in the shooting. And they focus on like bullying prevention and, and warning signs of kids who are um, isolated and might commit these kinds of crimes. So you do have different types of advocacy happening now. It's not just lump. People tend to lump it all under gun control, but it's really not. Right. I, I'm just, I'm fascinated. Where is your book available? It's available on Amazon. It'll be available anywhere books are sold. And get, once again, give us the title. It's called If I Don't Make It, I Love You. Go find it on our webpage. If I Don't Make It, The Book. Dot com or you can find me on social media and I'm always talking about it. Amy, this is it's just fascinating. I, I
0: I'm looking forward to unfortunately, a follow up. But if you're talking to these people that you've talked to before, I think they have much more to tell.
4: They have a lot to say. And I, w- that's part of the the impetus for this project is we felt like the survivor was the voice that was missing.
0: Once again, local author Amy Archer. The title of the book, If I Don't Make It, I Love You. It's available on Amazon as well as locally and at any location that books are sold. special edition we like to bring you things that are happening around the community and sometimes especially at this time of the year there are so many things happening we don't get to talk to everyone involved so let's just tell you a few of the things that are going on a Christmas Carol it's underway at Little Theater of Wilkes-Barre performance Sunday afternoon at 3 p.m. It's the annual Festival of Trees taking place on the second floor of the marketplace at Steamtown. It's opened through Wednesday, January 22nd to benefit Toys for Tots. You can also catch A Christmas Story, a musical, Sunday afternoon at 2 at the Phoenix Performing Arts Center in Duryea. The Pennsylvania Theater for the Performing Arts are presenting Home for the Holidays. It's taking place at the J.J. Ferrara Theater on Broad Street in Hazleton. It's Friday and Saturday at 7 p.m., Sunday matinee at 3 p.m. Maybe you'd like to get a little bit of exercise this holiday. You can skate with Santa. That's happening on Saturday, December 21st from 1.30 to 3 p.m. at the Revolution Ice Center in Pittston. How do you give hope to a child in the foster care
4: system? It starts with your heart. That tug you feel on yours when
1: you hear that children are waiting for a stable, loving voice to speak up for their best interests. And then it becomes your time. What started out as a feeling that maybe you could make a difference becomes the difference. Change a child's story. There is a child waiting for a volunteer like you. Learn how you can help at LackawannaCountyCasa.org. Imagine being forced to live outside with only a thin coat to protect you from the bitter cold. Desperate, you call out to your family, but they ignore you. All alone, you shiver and shake as frostbite sets in and you slowly freeze to death. When it's cold, bring your cat or dog inside. Make sure other outside animals have adequate food, water, and shelter, and report neglect immediately. For more information, visit PETA.org or call 757-622-PETA.
2: Thanks for
0: listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. A production of Intercom Communications.
1: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours